Welcome to the Nashville Vineyard Podcast. For more information, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Hey, so we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started. Uh, like we said, this is the, the final, uh, final session of our 2020 Vision uh, conference that we've had uh, geared towards uh, the prophetic and uh, how we can grow more in, uh, in our gifts of the prophetic. And also, what is the prophetic saying about this new season that we're moving in? And so it's just been a really... Really great time. Uh, it's continuing to, to build, it feels like, throughout the, uh, the weekend. And so last night was, uh, was amazing. And so we were all here very late. So if, if you see some of us that were here, just give us a pass on our, uh, how we look and maybe smell. Um, but because uh, it, it uh, we were here late. Uh, I'd like to, uh, to, to bring Ken up in just a minute. Uh, Ken, Ken has been here uh, many times now. And uh, he's a great friend of our church, and uh, and so anytime that he's here, it's just it's such a gift. Um, but even even better, uh, he brought his wife, which is amazing. So Beth has just been so wonderful to uh, to get to know you and all of that sort of thing. And so uh, yeah, you can do that. That's great. Yeah. I've gotten to know Ken personally, and I my I have a lot of empathy for Beth. And, uh, and all of that sort of thing. That's, uh, she's, she's doing the Lord's work, for sure. Uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, she's an overcomer. Um, but uh, Ken's just such an amazing, uh, amazing gift, uh, not just to our church, but to really the Capital C Church. He goes uh, across denominational lines, and, um, and it's just such, a, such an amazing thing. Uh, he bounces and crisscrosses all over the globe. He's going to going to step on a plane in a couple of hours and go to Israel for a minute and then uh, go to North Carolina and who knows where else. Uh, let me give a couple shameless plugs for Ken's stuff. Uh, I'm just, yeah, buy it all because it's really heavy and he doesn't want to take all of it to Israel. Um, but let me just tell you a couple of things about Ken that he probably won't tell you. From what I know and from people that I know who know, there's not many more right now that move in healing and power and revelation like Ken. Uh, I don't care where you go, and I don't really care who you listen to. Uh, the people that know, know, and I've talked to some of them, and they say uh, things like, Ken is legit, which is what Aaron told me when I first met Ken. Um, so I say all that to say, if you want to grow in your healing, if you want to grow in prayer for healing, if you want to grow in prayer uh, for, for deliverance, if you want to grow uh, in, your, in your ability to understand the prophetic or words of knowledge or anything like that, the best way I know how to do it right now until I can convince him to move here and live here is you buy all of his stuff and listen to it multiple times. And uh, we have multiple people that have been a part of our church and, and they went from novice to holy smokes, go get prayer from that person, uh, pretty much by just going down the kinfish rabbit hole. And so if that's something you're interested in, 
I, I really can't recommend a better resource. I can't recommend um, a better way to learn and grow uh, to do that other than just going with you on your trips, which is uh, available as well uh, for you. And you can go visit his website at uh, kingdomfireministries.org. Um, and, uh, and you can sign up through that. So I say all that to say, go, go clear him out for real if, you, if you're interested in growing in this stuff. It's the best way I know how to do it. Um, so without that, I've, I've asked Ken to close this out here. And, uh, and so we're going to leave qu quite a bit of time and room uh, for some ministry time at the end. Um, and, uh, and so we'll have, we'll have some fun uh, at the end of the service. But, but Ken's going to close this out. So Ken, could you come and could you guys welcome Ken Fish? Yes, sir. Let me make sure this is on. Yeah. So if you could, Ken's about to bless us. And, uh, and if you could, let's just bless him real quick. Just stretch your hands towards Ken. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for the gift that this man is. Uh, we thank you for his family. Uh, we thank you that you have, um, yeah, you've commissioned him and you've supplied all of his needs. Lord, I ask that this season be a season of increase and overflow and abundance. And so we just, we just release abundance and favor. We release financial provision over him. Uh, we release uh, divine health over him and his family. Yeah. Father, would you just bless them? Bless his wife, bless his marriage, protect their family, his daughters, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thank you. Love you, man. Amen. <laughs> uh, when Aaron was teaching on, I guess it was yesterday morning, he asked me to talk about my school, which... I did, but I don't know if I did the best job, so I'll just mention it again. I am launching an online school. Um, it'll be late March or early April when everything's up and running. If you're interested in finding out about it, just send an email to the office. It's a very simple email address, info at kingdomfireministries.org. Um, as I said, the primary platform is video, but we're gonna have monthly Zoom calls for uh, interaction and support. And plus, I assume people will start trying to use what they're learning. So if you get stuck and have questions, we can debrief those. And then um, we'll have an annual, I don't know, retreat or gathering or something uh, where we'll come and since everybody will presumably be on approximately the same page in the playbook, we can maybe get some really good stuff done. And then, like uh, Grant said, we'll have the trips still. So there's multiple layers. You can kind of get involved at whatever level of involvement you want to. It's not launched yet, but it will be soon. So info at kingdomfireministries.org. If you want to be put on the list so that you are notified when all the information is available, signups are ready. And you may start seeing things on social media because um, we're already starting to kind of put the word out. I'm hearing that helicopter. And uh, because I spent almost all of January recording the videos for the school, um, we had a lot of issues with aircraft because, you know, when you're recording in a, like a Hollywood type format, I mean, we had like professional equipment and producers and, you know, light people and all this stuff. Noise is one of your biggest enemies because the microphones are so sensitive. So as soon as I heard that, I was like, uh oh, <laughs> I'm going to start manifesting. Anyway, bad joke. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, I want to talk uh, this morning in our last session about uh, something maybe you weren't expecting to hear. We've talked a lot about what's coming and all the really cool and exciting stuff, 
But this morning I want to uh, I want to put some brackets around things, and I want to talk about prophecy and the new Gnosticism. And so with that, if you've got a Bible, you can open it to the book of Jude. Not a book we often preach from. It's a very short little book, easily missed. It's right in front of the book of Revelation. And we're just going to read the first four verses of the book of Jude. But it says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints or handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, some versions say unawares. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, Jude is, many people believe, uh, you know, one of the, one of the early semi-apostles. And I say semi-apostles because um, he identifies himself by the name Jude, but this is a shortened form of the Hebrew word Judah. And you could recall, possibly, although very few people focus on this, there are, there are five brothers of Jesus named in the Bible. I don't know where the Catholics get the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary when there were four brothers, but, or five brothers. But they came from her. <laughs> so unless she had, uh, you know, some sort of virgin birth six times in a row. And so this Judas is likely, m- many scholars believe, he's actually Jesus' half-brother. And yet he calls himself the bondservant of Jesus, which is interesting. So he knows his place. It would be a little bit like being one of the brothers of David. And, or you could remember also that there was Hannah who had Samuel the prophet and went on to have other children. But always there's this, yeah, well, but, but that's Samuel. You know, I'm, I'm Samuel's brother. So this is Jude that we're listening to. And I think it's important because um, Jude would have a particular focus that he wants to bring to bear and he says that there are these certain people who have crept in unnoticed and they deny the only master and lord well jude felt we're going to say an urging or a prompting and i'm going to i'm going to translate into that into the language of what we've been discussing all weekend long jude felt a prophetic word rising within him he was going to write to them about the common faith that they shared but he said instead i felt the necessity i felt the prompting And again, to use the language we've used this weekend, he felt the Navi unction come upon him. It's not quite the same as the seer unction. This is the one that bubbles up from within you. And when people are under the Navi anointing, well, they may prophesy to a congregation or to an individual, but sometimes that Navi anointing comes out in the form of writing. Jeremiah speaks of this, and so does Isaiah. And so... This is a Nabi anointing coming on the half-brother of Jesus. And he says, I felt that urgency. I felt that necessity. I felt impelled to write to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith. So the word is a simple one, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, what was it that stirred Jude to write this prophetic word? 
Well, the problem was false teachers and false prophets. Jude simply calls them certain persons. But we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that there are, there's an issue that's already rising by the end of the first century with false teachers and false prophets. And so Jude says they came in unnoticed, which means no one was really paying attention. What, what they were, well, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. So at first blush, they appeared to be pretty good guys. Or maybe some, in some cases, women too. Although in those years, more commonly, teachers and prophets were viewed as men. We do have examples in the scripture of female prophetesses. Four of them were the daughters of Philip the Evangelist. But more commonly, there was male leadership. So whether they're men or women, uh, Jude just goes on and calls them certain persons. But there had been warnings about such people. Jesus had warned uh, to be on your guard against false prophets. They would come in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they would be ravenous wolves. What do ravenous wolves do? Well, they eviscerate sheep and eat them. They leave them dead. What would be the analog to that? Well, that your faith dies, that it's wiped out. And Paul the Apostle had warned about such people when he was saying farewell to the Ephesian elders in the 20th chapter of Acts. James uh, Gall talked about uh, this passage last night, but not these verses. He was a few verses ahead of these. But Paul had written, or excuse me, had said to the Ephesian elders when he had bid them farewell, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Well, he's obviously using the same language that Jesus was using. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you with tears. So we have these several warnings that are strung across the pages of scripture and I'm trying to get back to Jude while I'm saying that we have these several warnings that are strung across the pages of scripture but the, the fruit of the teaching of false prophets and false teachers is easily recognized and Jude lays it out right here he says that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness number one and number two they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ now yesterday when we were doing the um, panel and we all three were sitting up here, I made mention of the fact that generally speaking within what I would call you know, third wave or fourth wave Christianity, river stream Christianity, uh, whatever, and I, I threw out some names, you know, Global Awakening, Bethel, Vineyard. I said generally speaking things aren't too bad here, but, but it, it's not entirely good either. There, is, there are some issues, and, and if you travel and you pay attention to what's being said, and it's easy to know what's being said because everything's available in social media these days, you, you will, if you have a discerning ear, you will, you will notice what's going on. And this is exactly the thing Jude is writing to the general flock. Paul had spoken to the leadership, and the message is the same, be on guard. Be on guard. So as much as I'm pro-prophetic, as much as I you know, want to see even more of it, we need to put some guardrails up because there are things that can go amiss and I dare say are going amiss. I went on to say yesterday that if you look outside of this thing called the river or third or fourth wave Christianity or whatever 
term you want to put on it. People use a lot of terms, which means no one really knows what to call it. Um, but if you look beyond that into wider Christianity, now, now things, there be dragons. And so the fruit of the teaching is easily recognized, licentiousness and denial of Jesus Christ. But let's unpack that a little bit, because if you simply say that, you're not really giving it much explanatory value. So false teaching and false prophecy are not merely human error as it pertains to the explication of truth. False teaching and false prophecy are not merely human error. Somebody's misled or perhaps a bit willful. I mean, that may also be true, but they are not merely that. They don't only originate in the mind. James, in his letter, not, now not James Gall, Saint James the Apostle, speaks in his letter of false wisdom that is earthly and natural and demonic. And so this is James 3.15. And so he's speaking of a kind of wisdom which appears wise. It's wolves in sheep's clothing. But it's not actually wise. It's actually problematic. And at its root structure, it has a power that he terms demonic. Now, you know, when we talk about the demonic, a lot of times people are talking about, you know, the demonic out there. And it's like this realm of stuff that's swirling around over your head. And, you know, people sort of rebuke the demonic. And they say, well, this is all demonic. But I'm talking about walking, talking demons like the kind that was in the man in the graveyard in Mark 5 or the kind that was in the boy in Mark 9, or there are a number of other stories of demonized people in the Bible. So this kind of teaching and prophetic, it arises from demonic enticement and demonic power, and both false teaching and false prophecy have this at their root. Now, Paul the Apostle specifically speaks about this, and when I've been here before, I've mentioned this verse, so but there's only so many verses in the Bible that you can use, right? So I'm going to use the same verse in a slightly different way here. But Paul says specifically that false teaching, and he talks about certain aspects of some of the false teaching that was common in his day, including vegetarianism or veganism. They forbid the eating of meat. But he says these things are the doctrines of demons. They are inspired by demons and the people who are promulgating them are being taught by demons and they are become the mouthpieces, the oracles of demons, if you will. False teachers will do that. And so I'm thinking of a number of false teachers that have risen up through the years. You could think about the Armstrong Worldwide Church of God. You could talk about Mary Baker Eddy in Christian Science. You could talk about Eckenkar. You can talk about Elizabeth Clare Prophet, although she would probably want to be on the prophet side of the fence, which we'll get to in a moment. But the point is there are a lot of these people out there, and they always kind of jumble things up. And like I said, Paul's speaking to something that was a particular problem in his day, which, as it happens, is also a particular problem in our day. But I want to be clear, this is way bigger than just whether people do or don't eat meat. This is way bigger than that. And so Paul says that people will give heed to such teachers and their teachings, and this is why he had warned the Ephesian elders to be on guard against it. That's why we need to be on guard against it. That's why we need to read a passage like the one we read out of Jude. And in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, there's a, there's a prophet named Micaiah. He's not one of the great prophets. I mean, he's a legit prophet, but, but he didn't write a book. 
he just gives, there's only one place he's mentioned, but he's known as a prophet in his own context. So he had street cred within his time and place, and at the time when King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat are collaborating to go to war, Ahab, of course, is the evil king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat is the better but not perfect king of Judah. They're collaborating to go to war out at Ramoth Gilead, and all of Ahab's prophets are prophesying, and they're saying, go forth and win. God will give the Arameans into your hands. It's going to be a rout. You're going to love this. This is going to be awesome. And Jehoshaphat, who is a much more discerning and, as I said, generally godly man, although he had some serious issues, but he's way better than Ahab, and he generally feared the Lord, and the scripture gives him an overall pretty good review. Overall, not quite universally good. Jehoshaphat says, well, is there no real prophet of the Lord of whom we can inquire? And Ahab says, well, you know, there's this guy, Micaiah, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me. He says, well, bring him in. I want to hear from this guy. And so they bring Micaiah in, and Micaiah says, well, I'm condensing because it's a Sunday morning sermon, but he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so... Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and he goes, did I not tell you that he would not say anything good about me? But in that time, in that, in that exchange, Micaiah the prophet says something very interesting. He says, I had an open vision and I saw the, the throne room of heaven, not the court of heaven. That's something different and that's bogus. The, the throne room of heaven. And when I saw the throne room of heaven, I saw all these spirits sitting at the feet of God. You say, what are all these spirits doing at the feet of God? Well, that was the Hebrew understanding in those times. It was the cosmology. And by the way, because it's in the Bible, it's probably right. I know it conflicts with a lot of our worldview, but it actually gives you the structure of reality in the spirit realm. And so those evil spirits are gathered around the throne along with the angels and the four living beings and the 24 elders and whoever else. And so there they are. And the Lord says, "Who?" and it says the Lord had decided to put Ahab to death because he was such an evil man. Now That conflicts with a lot of our modern teaching on prophecy too. God's always in a good mood. He would never do that. Oh yeah? Because it went on down and Ahab does die at the battle of Ramoth Gilead. But how do they get Ahab to go out to war? So it's like God's perplexed. I don't think he really was, but anyway, the way it's presented, he's like, hmm, what can I come up with? And so one spirit comes forward and says one thing, and another spirit comes forward and says another thing. And then finally one spirit comes forward and says, now watch this, 1 Kings chapter 9, uh, 22, verses 22 and 23. This one spirit comes forward and he says, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of Ahab's prophets. A lying spirit. Let's just slightly repackage it without changing the meaning and call it a spirit of false prophecy. I'm going to become a spirit of false prophecy in the mouths of all of Ahab's prophets, most of whom prophesy in the name of Jezebel and and, uh, Baal. Excuse me, not Jezebel. Baal and Ashtoreth. Jezebel is the wife. And so they're prophesying in the names of these other gods. But you know, spirits of, uh, that, that originate in those other religions and faith systems, sometimes they do tell the truth. They're still evil. 
They just happened to be telling the truth at that moment. This, by the way, I'm off script here, but it's important to say this for those who are confused at this point. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses says, if a prophet should arise among you, and he gives a sign or a wonder or gives a prophetic word and it comes to pass, but he tries to lead you in the direction of some other God than the Lord, take that man out and stone him. Kill him right now. Why? Because it's not just whether signs and wonders are happening. It's not just whether the prophetic word comes to pass that was given. That matters, but that's not the only test. And so Moses had laid this down in Deuteronomy chapter 13. You can read it for yourself later. So what's happening is all of these false prophets, they're prophesying in the name of Baal and Ashtoreth. What is that? That's leading Ahab, in this case, in the direction of other gods. They're all false prophets, even if what they say is right. That's what's going on. But in this exchange that's happening, Micaiah says, I had an open vision and I saw what was going on in the throne room of heaven and there was one spirit that was commissioned to go and fill the mouths of all the prophets. Now someone's going to say, how does that work that one spirit can be in the mouths of all the prophets? There, there isn't spatiality in the spirit realm quite the way we know it in the natural. But bottom line, all of these prophets are speaking out of a spirit of false prophecy. So Paul has given us a scripture in 1 Timothy 4.1 dealing with the spirit of false teaching and 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 22 and 23 give us an understanding that there are spirits of false prophecy. And so back to what I said, false teaching and false prophecy are more than merely human error. They are more than willfulness. They are more than what people come up with in their minds that seems contrary. And so these spirits, when they come into the mouths of respectively teachers or prophets, they will cause them to say things that are amiss, and with that they will lead people astray. They are operating under a demonic anointing. And people who come under that kind of thing, oftentimes they are themselves demonized. Sort of like if you step into the reactor vessel of a nuclear power plant and you stay in there, you will become irradiated. Same kind of idea, which is why I often say that these things are spiritually radioactive. Just stay away from them. So now we're dealing with something that is, it's an order beyond just what somebody's you know, best strange idea happens to be. We realize that there are actually powers in the world, spiritual forces that are leading people in one way or another. And whether they're teaching or prophesying, they're doing it out of that power. And so Jude says that when people are under that, these are ungodly people who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Well, what is licentiousness? I looked it up this morning in Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, and licentiousness is lacking legal or moral restraints, especially with regard to sexual restraints. In other words, go for it, it doesn't matter. Now, if you think about a lot of what's going on in the modern church, and you don't have to be particularly aware or discerning to be aware this is going on or to recognize it, um, there are lots of people who are, well, we're in love and we're Christians, but we're going to get married, so we're going to move in together. Or we're going to get married, so we're already having sex. Or there's a number of other things we could say, and I don't want to turn this into a purely moralistic sermon, but I do want to call this out because there's a lot of this that's going around. 
There's another form of it that says, well, you know, God loves the homosexuals too. And he does. It's true. He does love the homosexuals. But he doesn't love the homosexuality. And so the, the variant of it that's going on, and James actually made allusion to this last night when he was, now this is James Gall, not St. James. Uh, James Gall said last night that the Methodist church is about to split and this time it's really going to happen. And you know what it's all about? It's all about that because there's a whole group within the Methodist church that's saying, hey, gay is okay. And we need to you know, embrace this and celebrate it and ordain bishops that are gay and on it goes. So lacking legal or moral restraints. But note that it also refers to legal restraints, lest we purely make this about sex. So there's legal restraints. It means people who will not be governed. It means they, they rise up, whether it's against civil authority, authority in the church, or anywhere else, they, they're out of control. And it's also marked by disregard for the rules of correctness, which could mean, I know this is a revolutionary idea in our time, but when I was a kid, there was something that was passed in America for, this is kind of civil discourse. We don't really have civil discourse anymore. And the idea that people should conduct themselves in a certain way with a certain manner of speech, or that we should actually try to raise everybody to a certain level of, I don't know, common politeness, I don't know what else to call it. This has sort of been thrown out the door and people say, well, that's absurd. You, you can't expect everybody to be uniform. But, you know, most societies in, in history, including most of them that are, that are functioning right now in the world today, still, outside of us and a few other Western nations that are going down the same path we're on, most of them have a pretty clear idea of what the ideal is. Now, not everybody gets there, that's sure. But, but there's an understanding that this is where we want to be. And just so in the church, there's a, there's a kind of a sense that this is what church ought to be like. This is how we ought to live. This is what it looks like. And with that, this is how we conduct ourselves. And I can just tell you that in many quarters, all of that is sadly lacking. So these false teachers and false prophets, they incite and they conduct themselves according uh, to ways that are wholly inappropriate to the Christian faith. That's really what Jude is saying here. And so we're measuring a tree by its fruit. We're not being spiritual fruit inspectors. We're simply following the instructions that were given us by Jesus, by Paul, and by Jude when we do that. And so sexual immorality and excess is specifically identified, but Jude goes on to say that they also reject authority and they revile, and the Greek word is glories. It usually gets rendered something like angels or angelic majesties. But it can encompass a wider range of beings than angels, and it essentially encompasses spiritual reality of any kind. Now that's, a, that's an important tripwire because one of the things that's being taught in the churches fairly widely, I would say, uh, right now deals exactly with this realm of angelic majesties. Maybe they're fallen angelic majesties, but nevertheless. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. But a sign of false prophecy, then, is a lifestyle that's out of order, both from the standpoint of sexuality and the teaching thereof. I'd remind you that if you've read the book of Revelation, um, two of the seven letters that Jesus instructed John to write, you might say plenary verbal inspiration at this point, because Jesus is dictating to John, and John writes it, and then it gets inscripturated. So you're, you're literally watching how this is happening. Jesus is standing there among the seven lampstands in this thing that happens on Patmos. 
And he says there are two churches in particular that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans and to the teaching of Jezebel, and they, they instruct my people into immorality. And I'm going, to, I'm going to put her on a sickbed, and then I'm going to take her out if she doesn't repent. So when this stuff is going on, I mean, God is really serious about this. And we've been living in a time, I'd say, for the last 50 or 60 years, but it's gotten particularly acute in the last 20 years where sexual immorality, people just look the other way and wink at it in church, and this has got to stop. Because it will corrupt the prophetic outpouring. It will also lead people into the pit. But anyway, right now we're on the prophetic, so we'll leave the pit part to the side. But it is a fact. In fact, the scripture says those who indulge in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Which means in the most ultimate sense, but it also does mean that in terms of the kingdom release, the kingdom reality that we want to be walking in, dynamic good prophecy, or if we change channels and talk about healing or deliverance or whatever. But when we're doing all of that, um, if we have sexual immorality tainting us, it will, it will, it's like strychnine being fed in an intravenous drip into your vein. Your revelation will become clouded. Your accuracy will degrade. Your prophecies will be false. And lo and behold, before you knew it, you will become a false prophet too. Do I dare name a name? Todd Bentley. Period. There could be others I could name, but we'll just leave that one hang in the air because it's so current and everybody's aware of what's gone on there. And if you aren't, it wouldn't take you long to figure it out. So a sign of false prophecy is a lifestyle that is out of order, both from the standpoint of sexuality and the way it is taught, which is why I made reference to the Revelation passages, as well as how the prophet relates to authority. And so in our times, it comes garbed in language like this. Once you are in Christ, you can no longer sin. This is a teaching that is widespread in much of the body of Christ. It's, you know, I go to Australia a lot. Next month, March, I will go there for my 100th trip. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, woohoo, you know, let's have a big celebration, 100th trip to Australia. And I'm like, yeah, it all came out of right here. And I'm keeping Qantas Airways in the black. But, but it, is, it has become a poison that has infected the entire Australian church. And when I was out there in about March of last year, maybe it was May, but anyway, it was, early, it was our springtime, um, I could not believe the kinds of sexual immorality I was hearing about. I won't, I won't regale you with it this morning, but it was widespread and things that would be absolutely shocking to you if I told you. And that was just the heterosexual immorality. The, the homosexual stuff was this whole other category. So it comes garbed in language that once you're in Christ, you can no longer sin. And so there's a, there's a teaching that's, that's widespread right now in the body of Christ. that If you're in Christ, you have a new nature. You really can't sin. It's impossible. And I'm like, well, what do you do with 1 John 1, 9? If you confess your sins, he's faithful. And that's written to Christians. How can you even suggest that people can't sin? But people are doing it, and you know what's happening? People are sucking that stuff up. And they're like, I can't sin, so <laughs> go crazy. Anything I do is fine. Wow. That does not end well. 
Others will say that if you do sin, they'll allow for the fact that it might happen now and then. It doesn't really matter because, as it is said, it was all done at the cross. Jesus paid for it, you see, and so it doesn't really matter that you're doing these things, whatever they may be, because he paid for it already. Before you've even confessed it, he's forgiven it, and you're good. It's, it's almost as bad as the first version that I just described. And again, this teaching is running like wildfire through the body of Christ. So one of the marks of Gnosticism, and that's why I'm calling this sermon Prophecy and the New Gnosticism, one of the marks of Gnosticism from ancient times, the church fathers wrote about this. You can find it embedded in the pages of scripture itself as Gnosticism was just starting to rear its ugly head and the writers of these later books in the Bible, like Jude, like the book of Colossians that Paul wrote, these books are starting to address this as it's emerging, but it became a, a full-fledged barroom brawl between the Orthodox Church and the Gnostics in the late first century and into the second century, meaning, you know, the 100s, that's the second century. And so one of the marks of Gnosticism is that it alternately allows for the excesses of the flesh or deprecates and punishes the flesh. You know, the flesh is evil. We have to put it down and restrain it and constrict it. And so people do unnatural things to their bodies in an attempt to restrain their appetites. And when you see the behavioral trends in the modern church, you can see that the risk that I'm describing is in fact present. I'm not just, uh, you know, blowing a false alarm or trying to set up a punching bag here, the straw man. And if we relate, if we turn our attention to how people are relating to authority, well, that one really doesn't really, <laughs> hardly needs any commentary. But even as I say it, I think of a particular false prophet from a few years ago. This man was stood down publicly by the leader that had released him into ministry. And the leader did so with tears in his eyes. And he said, you know, this man's a son of the house. And we really, it is with great, great displeasure and sadness that we do this. And it's our prayer that he'll turn and we'll be able to restore him at some point. And yet that prophet would go on to speak ill of the very leader who had to stand him down with tears. And that prophet has not been restored. All of this is found right here in the book of Jude. Now, Jude doesn't unpack it. That's a preacher's job to do. But he talks about this thing. They take the grace of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, and they turn it into licentiousness. No boundaries. And then further to this is a kind of emphasis that speaks at length about how we go into the glory, or some would say ascend into the heavens. And with this, people are engaging in various behaviors, all of them Gnostic, um, such as demanding writs with which we confront spiritual beings up to and including Satan himself, demands that are then made for the release of, say, blessings like healing or promotions or for straying children to come home or whatever. But this kind of teaching, this, this you know, slandering of glories, this is also a mark of false prophecy. And there's one particular teacher who comes out of New Zealand, who I will name, Ian Clayton, who's the fountainhead of much of this kind of teaching. But there are other teachers, including one very prominent American who's well-known in prophetic circles, who's written a number of books on this kind of stuff and goes around to churches and teaches on it everywhere. And all of this is false prophecy, and people are just wrapped with it. They, I mean... I can't even believe how many people come to meetings I lead and they want to know all about that. 
And they say, well, I read it in a book, or this is what you need to get your breakthrough, and on and on. And yet I've talked to so many people, and I say, well, have you gotten breakthrough doing that? No. And in one instance, 11, I'll call them disciples, although I, I feel weird saying it because I don't really think anyone should have disciples except Jesus, but there are people who come to my meetings in that sense, I guess they're disciples of mine. I don't, I don't own them and I don't lord it over them, just to be clear. But anyway, these 11 disciples in another country, one of the teachers who's teaching this stuff was going to come to their town and they all thought, well, we want to get the latest and greatest revelation. And one of them wrote me and said, hey, we're going to go see so-and-so. I said, that's probably not the best idea you ever had. I wouldn't do that. But they all went anyway. Again, I don't control them. And so um, all 11, 11 out of 11 became demonized with Gnostic spirits and had to get delivered of them. And I don't mean like the Gnostic spirits, you know, that thing that's swirling around out there. I mean like they were walking, talking, rock'em, sock'em demons inside of them. And they were chucking their guts out and screaming and foaming at the mouth as they came out because they'd gotten mixed up in this Gnosticism driven by false prophecy of the current era. This only happened a couple of years ago. So, as I said, we need to put some brackets around what we really want to embrace when we're in the prophetic. I'm into the prophetic. But we are also told to weigh and test and assess prophecy. And I'm passing right now, dropping the plumb line and saying, this stuff is out of bounds and eh. And if you've been into it, now's the time to burn your books that you know sort of support all that stuff. And so... Now that we have these writs, we confront the spiritual beings, the glories, the angelic majesties. And so, as I said, this becomes another hallmark of false prophecy. The other thing that Jude identifies as a sign of these certain ones being false teachers and prophets is denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this one is, it should be laughable, except it's not. The word Christ is a Greek word. It comes from Christos. So you drop the last OS off for purposes of anglicizing it, and so we call him Jesus Christ. In Greek, he would be Jesus Christos. But anyway, that's where Christ comes from. And it literally means the anointed one. And so it is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach. Ha-Mashiach means the anointed one. Mashiach simply means anointed one. So Christ and Mashiach, which we render as Messiah when we anglicize it, these are equivalent terms. It's like, I don't know, this sweater is black, but in Spanish it's negro. Same word meaning two different words. So Christos is the Greek one and Mashiach is the Hebrew one, and we get Messiah from that. Christ isn't his last name. It is a description of who he is and the role that he fulfills in history. He is the anointed king who came in fulfillment of a thousand years of prophecy that God had spoken into the nation of Israel. And that's why we say he came in fulfillment of the prophets. That's who Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, or Yeshua HaMashiach, if you want to say it in Hebrew, that's who he is. Now, why am I making such a point of that? Because in our time, there is a movement that seeks to separate Jesus from Christ. And this is a particularly pernicious form of false prophecy and heresy. 
There is a movement that seeks to separate Jesus from Christ. And one of the most prominent false prophets, who's widely viewed as a mystic and who recently finished a book on this exact topic, turned it into a podcast, and it's been downloaded more than a million and a half times in one week. Just came out. It's been downloaded more than a million and a half times in one week as a podcast. This particular individual says, and I'm now reading directly and quoting, lest I be accused of unfairly representing what this individual is saying. He says, the spirit of Christ is not the same as the person of Jesus. Christ, essentially God's love for the world, has existed since the beginning of time, suffuses everything in creation, and has been present in all cultures and all civilizations. Jesus is an incarnation of that spirit, and following him is our best shortcut for accessing the Christ consciousness. But this spirit can be found in the practices of other religions, like Buddhist meditation or through communing with nature. This is the cosmic Christ who always was, who became incarnate in time, and who is still being revealed. That's a direct quotation from this false teacher prophet who is cruising around. And I tell you, this individual, Vineyard, are you listening? He is very popular in Vineyard circles right now. Very popular in Vineyard circles right now. And he's being embraced by this whole contemplative strain that's within the vineyard. I don't have any problem with contemplative prayer. It's great. But not this stuff. <clears throat> so this is nothing more than panentheism. Thank you, Wittgenstein and Hartshorn, if you're familiar with modern philosophy. It's the belief or doctrine that God is greater than the universe and yet includes and interpenetrates it. And panentheism differs from pantheism, which you may have heard of. Pantheism is the belief that the divine and the universe are identical. Fundamentally, Hinduism is pantheistic. That everything is maya, illusion, and that all of, it is a, is a, uh, all of the universe that you see is a representation of the divine essence. That's pantheism. But panentheism differs from pantheism in that it maintains an ontological distinction between the divine and the non-divine. Maintains an ontological distinction between the divine and the non-divine. And yet, even though there is a distinction that is recognized, both are viewed as significant. And <clears throat> panentheism claims that God is greater than the universe and yet he cannot even discover himself apart from the universe itself. In other words, God is in the process of uncovering himself. This is at the core of what today is called process theology in the seminaries. But it has at its root a Gnostic spirit and it is rooted in false prophecy and it too is overtaking much of the modern church. It is absolutely in the center of what's happening with the split in Methodism. It's already overtaken the entire Episcopalian denomination. Parts of Presbyterianism are starting to fall to it. And that's why I said, this stuff, you won't find too much of this in the river stream churches like this one. But you will find it outside. And so this thing, you know, in the early church, the number one fight that they had for the first probably 300 years was against 
Gnosticism. If you read the writings of the fathers, they were just going after the Gnostics, going after the Gnostics. And you know what? Satan doesn't have any new game. So what he's trying to do is derail the worldwide revival, which is being the leading edge of it is the prophetic ministry properly executed and he's trying to do it through this false prophecy and this is why I'm calling it out and I'm taking so much time to show you what does it look like and what are at least the, the key beliefs of it so that you'll go out equipped and when you, when you turn on your next YouTube video and you get a whiff of this stuff you'll go, uh -uh, I'm not watching that and you'll turn it off. That's really what I want to have happen. So Again, pantheism says everything is God. Panentheism claims that God is greater than the universe, and yet it's, you know, God is discovering himself and revealing himself through creation. Now, let's stop there for a second. Is God still revealing himself in creation? Yes, of course. I mean, we already talked about that. We talked about how signs come. We talked about dreams, visions, angelic visitations. We've talked about a lot of things this weekend. But don't forget what I started with in my first talk in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so the son is the ultimate revelation. He's the capstone of it. And while God may still continue revealing himself through creation in various ways, that does not take away from the finality of the revelation we've received in Jesus. And these false prophets and teachers, Jude says, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Note that he puts the two words together. Because Jude is a Hebrew. He's writing into a Greek context, so he uses the word Christ because that's their word for it. If you're writing to a Jewish congregation, he would say, Yeshua HaMashiach. But the point is, you can't separate Jesus from Christ. And so all this stuff about the Christ consciousness and the universal consciousness that's always existed and all that, and Jesus is just one, I'm going to change the word, avatar. That's a Hindu word, but he's just one avatar who became incarnate, and he's our best shortcut to get into the Christ consciousness and merge into the great divine. Whoa! heresy alert, heresy alert. The writer to Hebrews goes on and says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. All right, so yeah, there are some nuances. God is still revealing himself, and in that sense, uh, what this one false teacher that I'm calling out today, there's something of truth in it, but you know, most heresy has something of truth, and then it mingles it with a bunch of other stuff. And so this newer understanding, it undercuts the finality of Jesus, the ultimate and consummate revelation and this is why, as I said on the first night, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's got to point us right back there. And the other problem that comes out of all this, and this is, this is our next iteration of Gnosticism that is underway, is the new reemergence of universalism and annihilationism. Now, if you don't know those terms, universalism is the belief that everybody is ultimately going to get saved. And in fact, many people are already Christians. They just don't know it. 
Because, you know, they're so good. They're so well-intentioned. They do so many good things that they are proving that there is Christ in them even though they don't know that Christ is in them. And this is a kind of a mainstay of much of modern Christian theology, but it's, it's one of the ways that people sweep all of the Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and everybody else in and they say, well, they're all going to be there in heaven. This, this undercuts the need for missions, but it also undercuts the work of the cross. Because it's basically saying that there is a way to be justified before God the Father without actually putting your faith in that last sacrifice that was made on the cross. So universalism, that flows out of this um, belief that God is revealing himself in and through creation because anybody can access the Christ consciousness. They might not have taken the shortcut you and I took when we believed in Jesus, the avatar, but, you know, if they're doing it right with their Buddhist or Hindu thing, well, they're going to get there because they'll tap into the Christ consciousness. That's where that all goes. And that's what these people will tell you. And then the other thing that goes right alongside of it is annihilationism. Annihilationism is the belief that if you don't believe in Jesus, when you die, you won't go to hell. You'll just lie in the dust of the earth and it'll be like a candle wick when you snuff it out. And that's it. Game over. There's no, that's it. The end of it. There's a variant of that that says you'll be purged for a few thousand years for the things that you did that were evil. But at the end of it, you'll still just lie there and it's all game over. And what this is all trying to do is reconcile the idea that God is good with the, with the finality of hell. And so what does this necessarily do? It quenches evangelistic impulse by definition. Because the worst that's going to happen to you is you're just going to lie in the dust. I mean... Oh, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But here's, here's the thing. These twin beliefs, universalism and annihilationism, right now, today, according to very reliable sources that I am in touch with, these twin beliefs are running rampant through revivalist, river stream, vineyard-esque circles, and by the best estimates that I've heard as much as 80%, 80%, four out of five, eight out of 10 of the most prominent teachers in modern renewal Christianity hold to either universalism or annihilationism. And what that means that they, those very people have been suffused with that same demonic spirit of false teaching or false prophecy and they're promulgating it and many people are following it and they're starting to be drawn into it and be led away by it. That's a pretty sobering number, isn't it? And I tell you, that number is reliable. I have it on very good authority. I'm not in that camp, if you didn't guess. Because it doesn't square with Scripture. It doesn't square with the historic faith. What did Jude say? Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, but I felt the prophetic unction. I felt the urge, the Navi anointing, the necessity to write to you, to appeal to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is a faith that says, apart from him will no man be justified or woman. It's a generic man. And yet these are the times in which we live. Well, Jude said that he wanted to urge his readers 
to contend for the faith they had received, that means they would have had to jostle, fight, not be passive. And so the prophetic ministry, as you've seen on display this weekend, it's a wonderful and amazing thing. It's full of surprises, it's full of encounters, it's full of encouragement, it's full of theophanies, divine manifestations, angelic visitations, and more. But like Jude, I want to close this conference by urging you who are here or who may be watching the webcast or listening to the recordings at some time in the future. I want to urge you to contend earnestly for the one true faith that was delivered unto us 20 centuries ago. There may be new ways of articulating old truth, you know, updating it so it's a little fresher and kind of tracks to the way the modern world art communicates, but that doesn't mean we change the fundamental message. And it certainly doesn't mean we trip into these several different variants of false prophecy, false teaching, that I have uh, articulated. The faith is not being rewritten, only how we articulate it is being updated. So beware of licentiousness in all of its many forms. Beware of those who teach licentiousness. And beware of those who deny Jesus Christ by separating Jesus from Christ. And with that, let's go have our prophetic awakening. We've got the guardrails up. Amen. For all upcoming events and more information about the Nashville Vineyard Church, please check us out at www.nashvillevineyard.org. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.